Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. It has never been more important to articulate the wonder and enchantment of the Christian message. Do you believe that? But the traditional approaches of apologetics are often outmoded in an age of profound disenchantment and distraction, unable to meet this pressing need. This winsome apologetics book that we're going to talk about today comes out for a new generation, and it's making the case that Christianity offers a compelling explanatory framework for making sense of our world. Pastor and writer Gavin Ortland believes it is essential to appeal not only to the mind, but also to the heart and the imagination as we articulate the beauty of the gospel. Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't reimagines four classical theistic arguments, cosmological, teleological, moral, and Christological, making a cumulative case for God as the best framework for understanding the storied nature of reality. This book suggests that Christian theism can explain such things as the elegance of math, the beauty of music, and the value even of love. It is a suitable resource for use in classes, yet it's accessibly written, making it a perfect resource for churches and small groups. Gavin Ortland, our guest today, is a scholar, pastor, and writer with a growing profile among the next generation of Christian apologists and philosophers. He serves as senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California, and is the author of a number of books, including Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, and a book we talked to him about last year, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, on a previous episode of the For the Church podcast. And he's here today to talk about his new book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. Dr. Ortland, Dr. Gavin, Gavin Ortland, welcome to the program. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. We were talking a little bit uh, offline. You're out in beautiful California. Does it ever feel, um, you know, this episode comes out in January, but we're talking about it right before uh, we're recording this a week before Christmas. Uh, Does it not feel Christmassy this time of year in California? What do you yeah. got to do to make it feel Christmassy? Well, that when we first moved here, that was the struggle. You know, you <laughs> kind of miss the white Christmas. But now, I mentioned earlier uh, that it's raining today. So now anything that's outside of like 70 degrees and sunny feels, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, enough out of orbit that you think, okay, we can work with this. Yeah. Now you have, um, you've got California roots. I know you, your dad grew up there and your grandfather, you know, pastored there and uh when you were, I mean, were you born there or did you grow up outside of California? No, I grew up in other places. I was actually okay. born in Scotland when okay. my family was over there. My dad was studying over there. And then we kind of moved around. Um, so mainly Georgia and Chicago is where I grew up. Yeah. So, so, so going to California, that wasn't in your mind a kind of homecoming or, or, or was it? It wasn't really a homecoming, but we, my wife and I both love the West Coast. We love the culture. We love the weather and uh, kind of always had a longing to be out here. So when God opened the door, it just it kind of felt like the right thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And and uh, how long have you been at um, FBC Ojai? We've been here three and a half years now. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, when you went there, I was certainly glad for the church. I, I was trying to pressure some folks here at Midwestern to to hire you as a professor, but uh, the Lord had other plans, I suppose. 
Yeah. Oh man, yeah. I love I love what God's doing at, at Midwestern. It's just been amazing to watch. Hey, um, so I read your book a couple. Uh, finished it a couple weeks ago. Read it in about a week. Um, really enjoyed it. The book is called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. And and first of all, I just gotta say the cover design. Uh, I don't know who designed this cover. It, it, it's published by Baker Academic. It's uh, okay on the back. It says Ram Creative, which I assume is some sort of uh, design. Uh, company that was probably hired. Uh, I li- I like the cover. I don't know what it is. Is it 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 looks like it could be something galactic, but it also looks like it could be like a cross section of a mineral or something like that. Do you know what it is? You know, I'm not going to be a good interviewee on this question because I asked them <laughs> okay. when it first came out because I had the same thought. I thought this is so cool looking. I, and I asked them, they explained what it is. I completely have forgotten <laughs> what they said, except yeah. that I just remember I just like the aesthetics of it and just the feel of it. Yeah, it actually looks like uh, it's very similar. There's a Japanese novelist that I've enjoyed a few of his books. Um, and the designs of his books uh, all look the same in a, from a particular publisher. His name is Haruki Murakami, and um, it looks like the cover, even the typeface. I wonder if they were somewhat inspired by uh, Murakami's uh, stuff. But but anyway, great cover, but even better, even better book. I want to ask you um, your, your training is in or your specialty has been in the field of historical theology and you mentioned this in the preface i'm one of those people who actually reads introductions and prefaces and <laughs> forewords and afterwards and everything else uh, but in the preface you, you you mentioned this um you know the the transit well, not transition but your training your formal training is in historical theology but you you, you were led uh, by circumstances of life, or just um, I don't know, an in, in, internal pull to this—I don't know what what would you call it, brother? Philosophical theology, or just the philosophical? Yeah, question? yeah, yeah. Apologetics, philosophy, um, yeah, yeah. Academic philosophy, trying to be done in an accessible way, some something in there. Yeah, but you mention it in such a way that it almost sounds like it was a kind of devotional pursuit for you or uh, or mm-hmm. on on the level of spirituality uh maybe I'm misreading that but it it was you know the question of god kind of became a pressing thing for you not that you were down in the reality of god but there was something devotional in that for you could you explain kind of your your journey there yeah yeah part of it was just personal interest and just the way my mind works, what I love to study. I just find these arguments so interesting. So that that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is I have had a number of friends, sadly, who have uh, deconstructed their faith and uh, have uh, no longer would profess belief in God. And so as I talk with them, that's just been a piece of this as well. I can remember those conversations. I remember what that feels like. Um, it sort of made things a little more complicated and a little more personal in a sense, because I want to yeah. help people who are wrestling like that. And then, uh, yeah, also there is this kind of, I don't know how to put it, this kind of existential dynamic to thinking about God. And it it does, I, you know, that's partly why I find it fun to find a different area of research like philosophy is I don't believe these things are totally disconnected and the spiritual and the intellectual they're also connected. And I think thinking about these arguments for God can be a form of worship. Yeah. Well, and I think 
just the approach that you take or whatever it was that kind of drew you into exploring this question really lends itself to the, I guess, relational magnet of the book, to be honest with you. So, I mean, you know, it's an academic book. It's heavily footnoted. You're dealing with very intricate and detailed um, arguments uh, you know, against the existence of God and 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 you're you know interacting with the major literature and 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 those sorts of things. And yet it has this this feel of the personal in it. i I could imagine, you know, obviously none of us are probably, you know, have you know the kind of recall that could just say all, all the things you say in this book in a conversation with somebody off the top of our head. but it it, it still has that sense of, relationality to it, which I think contributes to, um, well, even the subtitle, right? The beauty of Christian theism. Um, why, why that tack? Why the beauty? Why not just the rationality of it? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about this in the introduction and just explain, I really am not trying to set the contrast too strongly, like the old ways of doing apologetics are bad or something like that. It's just right. a little bit of a different strategy, a little bit of a different approach. And I don't think there's only one way to go about these things. But I just have the feeling that there's so much uh, discouragement, disenchantment, uh, also, uh, distraction. You know, people are usually just not thinking about philosophical questions because our lives are so filled with, with clutter and and with busyness. Uh, there's also a lot of outrage and anger. There's just a particular feel to the culture right now, um, and I just have the feeling that, especially for younger people, um, but really probably for all of us, um, helping people feel that the gospel is not just true but also good. And not just true and good, but also beautiful, yeah. which is the the classic approach of the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, I just have the feeling that helping people see that, helping people feel that is only going to be a positive right now. Um, when people are in the darkness, when there's a lot of disenchantment, um, I think people, you know, really grasping with what the resurrection of Jesus means. It, the the uh, the emotional implications of that I think are really helpful to draw into apologetics. Yes, and I think it it connects to people on a whole person level, right? I mean, the, you know, that's there's very um, as I said, you know, detailed, intricate, maybe you know, complex intellectual arguments that you're making in the book, or intellectual um, explorations that you're making in the book. And yet it it's not just dealing on the level of the mind. It's it's you sort of the doorway into the person who is is a full person, someone who loves and someone who fears and someone who has an imagination. And and so to you know present Christianity as um you know answering all of those questions, um, I just think is is really important for today, which is why I think your book is so um, important and and so good. Um, you mentioned sort of you know people in, in in your own life, friends or or others who you know struggling with the faith, you know maybe deconstructing their faith and and having them in mind. Who who would you imagine uh, this book is is ideally for? So if someone's listening and they're thinking, you know, gosh, I'm not struggling with the question of God, or I'm not outright denying or doubting God, but 
you know, I, I might want to get this book to either equip myself or to hand to someone else. Who who do you imagine is the ideal reader of the mm-hmm. book? Yeah, I, I hope it could be a kind of a broad-based uh, readership. Um, but the person that is most on my mind would be the thoughtful Christian who's struggling a little bit or maybe asking some new questions. So I, uh, of course, I hope it would be helpful to skeptics who are exploring Christianity. I hope it'd be helpful to Christians who don't have any personal uh, struggles with doubt, but simply want to learn the arguments to help others, to help their own evangelism, uh, to be ready to uh, speak into the lives of others, or who just find the arguments interesting. But the person that's probably foremost on my mind is the, you know, I think of a, a college student or a, a someone in their 20s, they've maybe grown up in the church or have some kind of Christian background, but now they're kind of grappling with it. They're saying, wow, some of these things are really complicated. How do I know for sure? And that kind of thing. And that's where I just, you know, you mentioned the personal touch to it. Um, I include a lot of journal entries uh, from my, and this wasn't a strategy. It just sort of came out as I was writing because these arguments have helped me so much, you know, and that, so I, at, at times I'm trying to kind of walk the reader through, hey, here's, here's how it worked out for me. Here's how this argument, like, for example, the cosmological argument, the argument for God is first cause. Here's how that felt like a, a railing on a steep staircase, you know, something you can grab and steady yourself with when you lose your balance or something like that. And so, um, yeah, hopefully the personal touch will uh, influence uh, readers in that way. But yeah, those, I really think it could be a broad-based readership, partly because it's making a pretty modest case. I'm simply saying, hey, let's let's make it um, plausible, not certain, but let's make it plausible that God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. Because when people are deconstructing, I think it's helpful to kind of find something really solid and start reconstructing from that. So um, yeah, so those are with all the talk of deconstruction right now, gosh, it seems important to just put out things that can help people start at the basics. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think you also, you know, you interact quite a bit with some of the more popular, uh, you know, right, you know, the skeptic writers or the 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 anti-theist writers, Hitchens and Dawkins and, um, you know, Ehrman and some of those folks, um, you, you know, interacting with those um, authors who are somewhat popular, I think, um, is a credit to the book. But you, you also have um, some pop culture references that kind of surprise me, right? You, you mentioned Frozen Two and um, uh, X um, Men: Days of Future Past, which I saw, you know, right after it came out, and completely forgot it. And I just thought, is this movie deeper than I, <laughs> than, I, than I remember it being? I almost wanted to go back and watch it because, uh, you know, you bring up. I think you mentioned it a couple of times. It must have had a significant. So, you know, even those sorts of things, dealing with popular authors and pop cultural references, and of course you quote from Lewis and others, um, I think, you know, enhances, it doesn't detract from the book being an intellectual or academic work, but enhances the accessibility that it can have. Even for someone like me, I'm not an intellectual guy <laughs> at all. I don't usually read, you know, really big academic type books or anything. And this isn't really big, but... It's certainly academic, I suppose. And I just found it, gosh, so winsomely written and, um, you, you know, the personal, you know, as I said, there's a relational kind of draw in it that I thought was helpful. Why do you think that's missing? And maybe you don't, so I don't want to, you know, beg the question here, but 
Um, do you think that's missing? Why do you think that is from a lot of books that the Christian marketplace produces? And you don't have to name any names, but in the kind of apologetics framework, why why don't we go there more often? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. And and part of what's interesting for me with writing this book and getting pulled into this is I'm not a huge, you know, avid reader of apologetics books per se. I, I do actually love reading non-Christian philosophers, you know, and I love the ideas. But to me, the ideas of philosophy, the ideas we're grappling with, they must be able to relate to kind of the personal and you know, things we'll encounter in pop culture, like Frozen 2. Now, I'm, I give the excuse in the book that I have a five-year-old daughter. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, sure. But truth Whatever be told, you got to say to yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have to use that excuse. But truth be told, I, I do love the music in that movie. And, you know, it's a great example. So the character Olaf in Frozen 2, he, at one point, it actually is kind of interesting. He says that love is permanent. Now, if you stop and think about that, that's actually a really interesting philosophical statement. Is love permanent? That's just the kind of thing where I think we can utilize. We don't need to get real heady and academic to make the basic point. I mean, on a Christian worldview versus a naturalistic worldview, there's a pretty decisive difference there uh, in terms of whether love is permanent or whether because on a naturalistic worldview, once you start thinking about that, you realize, yikes, this is simply a spinoff of evolution. And that is it. And therefore, any sense of transcendence to it is just an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes. So, you know, you get into uh, these arguments and I think they touch that. That's to me part of the point is these issues touch us at every level of our existence. And, and you know, I, don't, I would go so far as to say I don't think we can watch any movie without being confronted with ultimate questions that the gospel presents itself to us as the answer to. Um, good and evil, you know, are good and evil. The, the struggle of every movie is good versus evil, and good almost always wins in the end. So that's interesting. You know, why is yeah. that? So I, I just find it helps to situate the gospel in, in relation to these most basic questions of our lives. And Blaise Pascal is really behind the book. He's the one reading through his pensée or thoughts uh, really is what motivated this particular approach. Yeah. Um, you build the book, you structure the book in a really um, specific way. Or I guess I should say it it builds into greater specificity as you go. So just for those listening who who haven't you know popped it open yet um the the table of contents there's four chapters and they begin with uh pondering the question of the cause of the world the second chapter is the meaning of the world the third is the conflict of the world and then the fourth is the hope of the world um kind of walk us through just you know the broad strokes of your the trajectory that you know you're building a case aren't you you're getting into more specificity as you go uh how do you start how does that progress what was the reasoning behind that trajectory yeah okay yeah so i'm drawing these four classical arguments for the existence of god four of them into a narrative framework i'm saying let's take each of these arguments and consider them as kind of one of the essential characteristics of a good story so for example the moral argument becomes the drama of the story uh, or the conflict of the story the argument from christ the last chapter uh, becomes the hope or the happy ending or the denouement of the story 
the argument from design or teleological argument becomes the meaning of the story. And every story has meaning. Every story has conflict. Every story has hope and so forth. The benefit of that for me is that, first of all, these arguments are not standalone. Um, they're drawn into connection with each other, kind yeah. of in a cumulative way. Um, second of all, I think story is so powerful. I mean, you know, somebody once said there have been cultures that don't have the wheel, but there have been no cultures that don't use stories uh, because stories are simply how we make sense of reality. So, yes, as, as you mentioned, it kind of becomes a little more focused as you go. With the first chapter, I'm simply trying to kind of put a foot in the door. And so the, the argument for God is the first cause. I'm simply trying to say, hey, look, naturalism is a very cramped and restricted worldview. And it really struggles to make sense of why our world is even here to begin with. And then, you know, the, there's sort of building confidence or, or building certainty as you go. So the arguments are what are called abductive arguments, which means an inference to the best explanation. So it's not a, a certain or, or deductive argument. And then only in the last chapter with Jesus do we really get to um, really only then do we get to religion and only then do we get to Christianity specifically. Yeah, you mentioned – I want to get specific about the famous uh, you know, trilemma from Lewis, the liar, lunatic, lord. You have a section there, and you anticipate or you interact with uh, a common objection to that or kind of add uh, an option there. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So there I'm interacting with Bart Ehrman and other uh, scholars who have argued that Jesus didn't claim to be God. And so that it does, uh, I do think we have to add on that as one option. So if we think of Lord, liar, or lunatic, well, that that appeal in and of itself assumes that he did actually make the claim right. to be God. And so if we add on the category legend as a fourth option, I think we can be a little more comprehensive to accommodate that concern. And this is was an area that encouraged me. I, I didn't expect the historical apologetics to be as strong as the philosophical apologetics, but I was amazed at how solid and how compelling the historical evidence is for Jesus claiming to be God. And, you know, as I try to just walk through in that chapter, even if you accept the criteria of someone like Bart Ehrman for which parts of the Gospels uh, go back to the historical Jesus, which I think that can be questioned. But even if you accept that, there's so much in the Gospels that just can't, in my opinion, cannot be accounted for other than by acknowledging this this person, Jesus of Nazareth, seems to be functioning with divine authority. He seems to claim to forgive sins, and he knows what that means. He seems to put himself in the role of the divine judge at the end of history, Daniel 7, he quotes, for example. So I just think the uh, case for Christ claiming to be God is is really solid, and that puts Lewis's trilemma back on the table. Yeah. Your your historical chops kind of um, come out towards the, towards the end of the book as you begin sort of examining the evidence for, you know, the historicity of the scriptures and uh, evidence for the resurrection and all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it's just a really— uh, compelling kind of uh, a- approach. I want to ask you because I ask you know anyone who kind of deals in the field of apologetics this, and and even to some extent evangelism. Uh, do you think someone could be argued in into the kingdom? <laughs> I remember. Let me just set this up. So I remember. I've always thought no, no one can be really argued into the kingdom. 
Uh, but I remember reading, I think this was in The Gagging of God, where Don Carson tells a story about a, a man who had all these apologetic or, or uh, he had all these intellectual questions about Christianity and and was not a believer. And so Carson began meeting with him over coffee or something like, you know, once a week on an evening or something. And the guy came with all of his questions. And and so they spent time sort of going through all of, all of these questions. And of course, this might only happen if you're able to do this with Don Carson. I don't know, but <laughs> eventually he said the fellow at the end, um, all his questions were resolved. And of course, you know, you know, Carson's not going to deny the, the turning point for someone coming to saving faith is of course the, the Holy spirit awakening, you know, a, a sinner's heart to, to see the beauty of Christ. But the way that the Lord used it, you, you know, the bridge, I guess, to that saving faith, was this um, intellectual thing? How do you think that plays out today? Can people be effectively argued into the kingdom? Do you do you see people who their objections are are kind of overruled and 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 there's a great convincing of them into the faith? Yeah. Well, I think we can all uh, imagine people, or maybe we've seen people who think you can argue someone into the kingdom in the sense that if your arguments are just good enough, then people <laughs> will be forced <laughs> to uh, to acknowledge what you're saying and change their mind and so forth. And of course, that's not how it works in apologetics or any area of life. You know, it's not just the rational that you can kind of leverage to force someone to do anything. But I think the danger could be going too far in the other direction such that we don't appreciate how the Holy Spirit does use arguments, uh, among other means, uh, by which to bring people closer to the gospel and and into the gospel. So um, a model for me, just at a a practical level, is the way Francis Schaeffer would deal with people. He used to talk about, you know, honest answers to honest questions. He really listened to people. When when people would come to Labrie, they would talk about how I felt like a human being. He treated me with dignity. He li- he understood. He listened to the particularities of my questions. And I really think it's important to address the questions people have. And of course, we don't know how the Lord's going to use that. Of course, it's not just the arguments that will be compelling, but certainly, um, I think that's a, a an important part of how how we commend the gospel. Yeah, and and you know, and that's why I think, to some extent, this is, um, you know, can be used to strengthen the faith of of those who already believe, but who, um, you know, have questions or or doubts or or you know, their faith is somewhat weakened by, you know, the intellectual onslaught. I I suppose, but um, I think on the other side, for unbelievers, it could it could certainly be used to um, kind of adorn the gospel to show the, you know, the rationality or the, you know, the reasonableness of, of the faith. Um, I think if I were, you know, kind of positioning, um, you know, your book along with others that are similar, uh, you know, Keller's The Reason for God, of course, stands out and, you know, such a, uh, a big seller. And, and so a lot of people are aware of it. And, you know, certainly there's intellectual arguments in, in there, but I see your book as, as for my intellectual atheist friends who, you know, they found Keller's book somewhat, you know, not remedial, but, you know, um, less, less um, intricate, I think. And, and yours really takes it up a notch to really deal uh, in depth with some of the, the, the deeper 
questions and the more complex. I mean, you, you talk about time and space and all these things. And I just, um, I was really blown away. Um, how do you imagine, Gavin, this will be my last question for you. Um, how do you imagine this book fitting into gospel conversations? Could you see it as sort of the doorway in or sort of a bolstering after the fact or, or what? Well, I I hope it could be, you know, first of all, to, to as you said just a moment ago, you know, nourishing and helping Christians. I, I really believe apologetics can be helpful for Christians, yeah. even at a sort of subconscious level. I think sometimes when a Christian is bombarded with these objections and they don't have a response, it's just kind of uh, disconcerting. And to simply think through the reasons we have for our faith can be an encouragement. It can be a, a, a nourishment to our faith. Um, yeah, and then for in gospel conversations, I mean, I, I hope that maybe someone reading this book, what I like to encourage people to do at, at our church, we went through uh, Greg, I think his name is Greg Kokel, um, yep. but uh, his book Tactics. And one of the takeaways from that is the power of questions, you know, so asking questions. So, so boiling down everything we're saying in here in chapter one could the, could be the simple question of where did the universe come from? You know, total, simple, basic question or um, going to the, the argument I make about happy endings and, and so forth. We could say something like, you know, a billion years from now, will the way we live matter? You know, so just drawing from what I'm saying and, and being able to articulate it in a clear street level, understandable question, I think, can be one of the one of the powerful appeals we can make. Um, so and then, yeah, I, I would just hope that someone who's reading it. Uh, here's what I really hope is maybe someone who's doubting that they're questioning or they're not a believer and they're reading the book. They could feel something of the wonder and enchantment so that even if they're not persuaded yet, they'd say, gosh, if it's true, if Jesus rose from the dead, it it, it is the movement f- from uh, the darkness to the light. It is infinitely happy news. It's like y- y- when you realize the person you love loves you back or when you wake up as a little boy and you realize it's Christmas morning or something like that because Jesus really does make that if you're if you're looking at naturalism and you're looking at Easter, Jesus rose from the dead, the difference between those two really is infinite for the human heart. And so I hope the book will just help people feel that because even just that step alone, that's not all we need, but I think that's a really important step. That's fantastic. You you do something at the end of your book. Um, I've never been a big fan of Pascal's wager, and yet you do something that made me, that made me just about like it. And and so I just want to close with, uh, I'm just going to read from uh, the last uh, little section of of your book here. It's called Taking the Wager. This comes from the conclusion. Uh, Gavin Ortland writes, in the meantime, what do we do? As Pascal emphasizes, we must choose. We must wager. We must make the best decision that we can in light of the information that we do have. And why, after all, should we expect certainty before we have done this? For Pascal, it is here that the beauty of the gospel becomes most acutely relevant. One of his briefer entries simply reads thus, an heir finds the deed to his house. Will he say perhaps that they are false and not bother to examine them? This is our situation in relation to the gospel. It is a message that concerns our infinite happiness and the everlasting good of the world. It claims that our world has an author, a meaning, a struggle, and a hope. If anything ever deserved to be longed for, it is this. If anything was ever important, it is this. 
It is as though you have confessed your secret feelings to your true love and are even now awaiting a reply. Are you almost convinced? Would you give anything, as would I, for it to be true? Then believe. Give yourself to that belief as you give your heart to the one you love. In that posture, you will find certainty and you will find yourself. Beautiful stuff. Brother, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jared. Really enjoyed it. The book is called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. It's available now wherever good books are sold from Baker Academic. Buy a copy, read it for yourself, have your faith strengthened. Buy a copy for a friend who may be um, helped by it as well. I think you will be very, very blessed. And as always, dear reader and dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.